Brianna Maitland went missing between 11.30 p.m. and 12.30 a.m. on March 19, 2004, in Montgomery, Vermont. She was 5'4", 110 pounds, and 17 years old. Her Oldsmobile was found backed into a place commonly referred to as the Old Dutchburn House. Her trunk was lodged into the foundation of the abandoned house. We now join the community of people, including her friends, family, and investigators, who desperately want answers after 13 years. If any of our listeners have any information, please contact the Vermont State Police. Welcome to Crawl Space. Here we are tonight talking about the Brianna Maitland case. I'm Tim. I am here with Lance and Chloe. What is up, you two? What is going on? I'm sorry I stepped on Chloe there. I should be more polite. Chloe, how are you this evening? I am doing great. No offense taken at all. How are you? (laughs) Doing very well. Uh, Good stuff tonight. All good over here. Um, What we want to do for this episode is sort of have a discussion on where we are with our Brianna Maitland coverage. So the last time we kind of did one of these was episode four, Stranded. And then since then it was two interviews with Brianna's friends, Katie and Megan. And we heard some really interesting stuff from them. So we want to kind of regroup and uh, debrief and talk about some of that and talk about some of the things that have happened since the last time we all talked like this, including those interviews and the meetings and phone calls that we've had. Exactly. I think it's uh, something that we probably learned from um, doing uh, the uh, Morris case, which is uh, don't go so long without bringing the audience up to speed and and doing these check-ins, doing these um, these where where we are now uh, episodes. It's really important, especially when you have all these characters and a lot of different like uh, rabbit holes and convoluted uh, uh, scenarios, etc. So before we get into the the details of what Katie actually said, I'm curious, Chloe, because you have had more of the contact with Brianna's friends. You heard from Katie after the interview. What was her thoughts on uh, on how it came out? She was very pleased to be involved in something that could bring more attention to the case. I think that the case has deserved more media than it's received. So I think that seeing the interview published on iTunes and on YouTube made her happy because it gave her a voice. I think it did make her feel a little bit nervous saying the things that she said. You know, these stories that she told were firsthand accounts. You know, she heard people say things and it was a huge risk what she did. And I think although... It makes her uneasy. I think it's worth it to her because she cares about her friend. And she said as much to you after the interview. And um, I remember when you first spoke to her before we did the interview, it was like it opened up a bit of a, a, a floodgate with memories of Brianna. And she was kind of guarded, I guess, with uh, the initial conversation you had with her. But once she started going and remembering the good the good things about her relationship with Brianna and even some of the not so uh, pleasant details, she started uh, she started sending you messages and saying, oh, one more thing and one more thing. Um, with the uh, investigation aside, do you think that this is something that might be somewhat therapeutic for people 
like her who have just kind of been left out to you know left out to dry kind of swinging and not having any information or any answers in 13 years what struck me was she wanted to remember things i specifically was asking her questions about memories something about brianna tell us a story that would make us feel like we knew her and i could tell that she was getting frustrated because she she wanted to remember good things and she actually she flat out said because what happened to brianna or whatever could have happened to brianna it's surrounded with such darkness that i think it went hand in hand with her kind of repressing even the good memories unintentionally because thinking about brianna was so heartbreaking it kind of forced her to repress good memories and we were talking about that phenomenon and honestly when i talked to her other friend kira trombley she expressed similar sentiments that the negative aspects of well the negativity surrounding brianna's disappearance has made it so they've forgotten positive memories so in that way they're secondary victims but i think being interviewed that way when they really have had no exposure. I think that all of a sudden she was starting to remember things. So she starts texting me, remembering that story about the hair dye and them dyeing her hair red and the entire bathroom is still, there's still signs of that hair dye on the walls. Like that all was coming back to her. And she actually said, you know, like, thank you so much. So I, I'm, I'm glad that, that this kind of conversation was able to facilitate positive memories to come back. Okay, and I just have one more question or one more uh, just some feedback or insight into the psychology of the whole thing, and then we can move on uh, from this this part of it. But uh, do you do you think uh, you, you you said secondary victims, and for some reason that really piqued my interest because uh, all too often, even when we're doing uh, this these cases, every case, every podcast that does true crime or um, you know unsolved uh, open investigations, uh, there's not a whole lot of there's not a whole lot of talk, discussion, or even consideration of secondary victims. Um, I don't think that's intentional at all. I just think it's something that people focus so much on the incident and the uh, the perceived victim, and they don't think about the secondary victim. And it brought out some some good memories, and it brought out some sort of therapeutic re- uh, response from her. Do you think between Katie and Megan? The, the second interview we had with, with Brianna's friend friends, um, do you think they're getting some sort of anger uh, release out of this as well? Because you can, you can sense it. Not so much in their voice, but you can sense it in uh, when we were Skyping with them. At the end of both episodes, we gave them an opportunity to add anything they thought might be important or say something directly to the people who might be involved. And you sort of... Both of them became quite strong and fierce and powerful, and you can and you can hear that anger. And I think that's something that's probably been um, an anger that's been living inside of them for thirteen years now. And it is interesting to note that both Katie and Megan sort of had the same account of what they believed happened, and they believe that Brianna was the victim of a drug overdose and some of the people she was hanging out with and some of their former friends sort of scrambled and panicked and disposed of her body. That's essentially what what they said. Now, we've heard a ton of stuff about what may have happened in this case, and that is definitely 
close to, if not at the top of the list, that the idea of what they said and, and sort of that, that angle. But it's not the only thing we've heard, and some of the investigators in this case don't necessarily think that that's what happened. They think that it, they're, they're happy that, that Brianna's friends are talking, and they think this is a good development. But we heard from some of the investigators and from Bruce Maitland, actually, who alerted us that this isn't definitely what happened. You know, the, the, there is a lot of things that people have talked about, and this isn't definitively what happened. There are a lot of moving parts, and we've heard a lot of stories, and I tend to think that there's some truth in a lot of the stories that we've heard, and nothing is 100% true. But I think it's important to note, and I think it's, it's important to say that this isn't the only angle we're looking at. You know, the, these other people that we've heard from, Bruce, Greg, and, and Lou, and some other investigators, aren't necessarily sold on the idea of an overdose, which is true. And we heard from, like you said, we heard from Bruce Maitland, uh, Brianna's father, and he called us after Megan's interview and said, uh, uh, without giving you guys too much, because obviously, and legally, uh, he wants to be very careful with the information that he has. He he said, it was a great interview. I like hearing from Brianna's friends, but here's, uh, here's the, the, here's a path that you might want to go down a little more. And then we hear from Greg and Overacker and Lou, and we hear the other side of it, which is this group of people that were in this small town at the time that the locals, especially the the local high schoolers, uh, especially the adolescent teenage females became involved with, probably, in their eyes, had something to do with Brianna's death. Now, the information we've heard from Katie and Megan, Brianna's friends, is an accidental overdose, and these people who were there when it happened need to, quote-unquote, man up. I don't believe that it is, and you guys can stop me if you if you disagree, or come back if, if you disagree. I don't believe it's as clear-cut as it's this one or it's this one. It's not A or B. It's a mesh of A and B. Perhaps it was an accidental overdose, but with this group of what what we've heard to be drug dealers and, and violent types mixing in with the locals that have been there. Either way, one or two people from either one of these groups has the answers to this. And it doesn't matter who we put the pressure on because, like I said, I feel like it's a... I feel like it I feel like at one point for a, a period of time in that town these two groups were very close knit. I wouldn't want to limit it to only two things that we've heard or only two outcomes because I think we've heard more than that. Um and let's just get right into it because you know the, the this this idea that Brianna overdosed at a party sort of goes against the thought or what the police said that there was a struggle in Brianna's car when she was extracted from it. Sure. So it's it's kind of hard to take both of those as truth. Sure. I I, I probably uh, misspoke or or didn't didn't clarify uh, clearly. I, it's it's more like two groups and two scenarios that I feel like came together, and whether and whether it 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 
I think it all had to do with drugs. And I think if she was taken from her car, which when you look at the car and you look at uh, the, the evidence around the car, it does appear like she was taken from the car, that there was a struggle. Um, whatever happened after that fact had to do with that the people that Megan and Katie are talking about had something to do with the group that probably directly involved in that struggle. And specific scenarios are very fa- are very hazy to me because I'm not I'm not sure, right? Right, but uh, I I want to I want to mention that when when you said it's all about drugs, it it doesn't necessarily mean that Brianna was taking drugs that night. True. What what I meant to she, <laughs> she had left work at eleven thirty, and someone right. spotted her car at twelve thirty. Right. So that gives her an hour. And, and Greg has gone over this and we've talked about this. Yeah. But it's like, how does she go to a party and overdose and everyone scrambles and gets her car back into that bar or into the house and then her car spotted and everyone gets away with it? Um, yeah, I, I kind of don't think that's at all what happened. Right. I'm I, With the drug uh, reference, I, I think I was getting at. The reason why these two these two groups in the town even had a relationship was was a drug related relationship. They, There's you know, no they, question about that. Right? They they weren't they weren't doing like a, a book book of the month club, you know. Um, but how it happened, how the struggle happened, if there was a struggle, I agree with you on that. That's that's and this this might be one of the biggest questions in the whole case. Like, do we focus on why the car was there and, and what happened in the car? Or do we focus on the people that uh, were in her life uh, directly or uh, peripherally? Because does it matter? Does it matter? This is something that we've learned. <laughs> Surprisingly, we've learned stuff. This is something that we've learned over the past couple of years. Like, what does matter? The car against uh, that house, the car backed into that house, people can have the, their theories that, oh, she must have been going 30 or 40 miles an hour backwards to do that. Now, what happened there? And that's that's really that's a that's a Hollywood thing to think. But does that matter? How fast the car was going when it backed into the Dutchburn house? Yeah, I think it could. It could. It, it could shed a little more light on what what happened at that scene. I think how her car got there could tell us whether or not there was a struggle. We had a conversation with Bruce Maitland recently who said that he was 100% sure that she was taken from the car based on some things that he was told by the Vermont State Police, things he couldn't tell us. It's not realistic to think that that's a staged scene when you go with the theory that there was a accidental overdose and her friends didn't know how to or the group that she was with didn't you know panicked and couldn't cover it up or or tried to cover it up and then they went and staged this car in what 25 minutes like yeah but see that i could actually believe more than more than you know she was taken from the car and and then they staged it i feel like it was either staged because of this overdose and these people who were on drugs did this thing that made no fucking sense to anybody but them probably in the minute and maybe that's why it was done the way it was done or it happened or it was left the way it actually happened and she was extracted from the car in some kind of struggle we're talking about staging a scene here we need to think about you know, it could be like what Tim said, that they were just doing a spur-of-the-moment thing in a drug-fueled state, and that's why it looks like it makes no sense. But I just, I feel like it's too bizarre of a staged scene for it to be a staged scene. Like, it's it's like it's like too weird to be fake, the way that everything was found. Like, if they, if someone harmed her and then they wanted to stage her car, would they be trying to push the narrative that she got into a wreck and wandered off? What are they trying to push here? They made it look like there was a struggle. 
Or there really was a struggle. Right. Or there really was a struggle. So if someone's trying to stage it, wouldn't they try to make it look like it was different from what it actually was? Wouldn't they want to make it look like it wasn't foul play? Absolutely. Because if you're going to stage the car and make it look like a wreck, what do you do? You don't back it in there, right? You you would probably put some sort of brick on the accelerator and just watch it go straight on into this, like as if she lost control and went straight on, on the like into the house. The house is a weird location, too. Like, why, if you're going to stage it, why are you doing it at this house? Why are you even staging this this accident in the first place when you could just leave it on the side of the road? That's a great point. If it's staged, why the hell would it be there unless the party happened there? Unless something the, happened there. Okay. Right, unless there was a party that, that was there and she overdosed there. Um, but I think what makes more sense is that that was her route home or wherever she was going. But if the overdose was there... Why would they ditch the car by crashing it at the scene of the crime? I, I also I want to reference the disappearance of Leah Roberts and um, her car was discovered in Bellingham, Washington, and it was driven at I think it was at a certain acceleration, maybe around forty miles an hour, over an embankment, and it was found in the woods. And so they thought that she got into a car wreck and stumbled out, disoriented, and something happened after that. But they did more forensic work on the car and found out that it had been doctored with and that it was probably, it probably went over that embankment with no one in the driver's seat. So you have to think about the intention of what they're trying to stage. Clearly that perpetrator was trying to make it seem like there was an accident and she stumbled off. So if this was staged, what are they trying to say here? That disappearance in Washington sounds a lot more premeditated than this does. Yes. Well, in, in that case, she was, without getting too far into a, a rabbit hole, she she was traveling by herself from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast and ended up in Bellingham, Washington, which is quite close to the Canadian border. So she was last seen at a restaurant bar talking to two men. She was sitting in between two men at a bar that she had seemingly just met, and there are conflicting reports about either leaving alone or leaving with one of these men. So whatever happened to her, it couldn't have been too premeditated because she was alone in a new place. I thought that the question that uh, that I asked a few minutes ago was going to be kind of a, you know, like a, a throwaway question, but I guess it does matter. I guess it does matter when you look at the car and how it's at that location and how it's in there, how, you know, it does matter because then you can break it down and, and say, you know, it does look like it does look like there was some sort of meetup at that location, some sort of struggle, and the struggle, you know, became a real struggle, and that car was either put in or knocked into reverse and backed into the house. If we're right, and this was, and this was a struggle and not a staged incident, then the story that that Katie and Megan believe can't be true, at least to a certain level, because. In in this in that story, it was an accident, and people just reacted poorly by covering it up. If she was extracted from the vehicle and there was a struggle there, there was no accident. Yeah, Katie and Megan are very brave for coming on and talking to us and, and saying what they did. But I think it's possible that they'd rather accept that their friend died of a drug overdose than was met with first-degree murder from people that they know. I also think that... Um, and this is something that they both said was that this man in question that both of them are referring to 
he was their friend. And for many years, they believed he was above suspicion because he was their friend. And that biased them. But with with time and experience and becoming parents and whatnot, their perspective has changed. And when that relationship died, they see it in a less biased way. So I think that they've connected those dots based on those feelings of loyalty dissipating and the stories that they've heard first and second hand. So I, I, I get where they're coming from. And there's no reason for both of these stories to be accurate because what we've heard is their version of it secondhand. They weren't directly there to see what they described as Brianna overdosing. Only what they've heard from the person in question via someone who knows that person. There's no reason why both of these stories can't be true. If this other group of people, this this bad influence that came into the town, were connected with the people that Katie and Megan are talking about, and there was a struggle at Brianna's car, and they did take Brianna to a party and did feed her drugs for whatever reason until she overdosed, and those people that Katie and Megan are talking about were there, This the stories can coincide they can come together and and be accurate that that they might have seen her overdose and die and it might have been with at the hands of the people that were coming in from out of state and from what we've heard everyone was pretty much intimidated and and very afraid of and the rumor that not even a rumor right i mean this is this is a fact that brianna was told something at that at the uh at the what was the store yeah, I'm not sure of the store, but yeah, she was sort of warned to she not go to warned, work that yeah, night. Not to go to work. Yeah, and, and we don't know exactly what was said, but that is what we believe happened. I, I feel like we're we're pretty close to at least coming to some sort of uh, some sort of plateau of of these two groups and these these theories about how it happened and where it happened. Yeah, and I, and I don't think that, like you said, it it doesn't mean that um, Katie and Megan's accounts aren't true, or there aren't parts of it that aren't true. I mean, like we were saying, there, there could be, you know, Brianna could have been extracted from the car and then taken to a party and fed drugs and then overdosed and still disposed the same way that Katie and Megan said. So yeah, we're certainly not disagreeing um, with people. We're just trying to talk it out a little bit right i think that there i think that the story can still be some parts of the story can still be true except for the fact that there was no ill will and that there was no abduction or struggle it still could have happened at a party you know katie firsthand heard this person saying he saw the life drain out of her and that could mean in an accident or it could mean because he either participated or witnessed in her death Certainly seems to be some feelings of guilt there. Um, but some things that we heard from Greg Overacker recently um, led to Burlington, Vermont. And I thought that was interesting. And, and, and basically saying that, that Brianna had been alive potentially for days afterwards uh, down in Burlington, Vermont. So that's like a, a whole nother wrench, but it is something to look into. It's definitely not something to be dismissed. Again, th- there are a lot of parts here, and, and there is some truth in, I think, all of these stories. So just know that we are still looking into all of them, and we are still talking to as many people as we can. 
as we've learned over the course of what we've been doing uh, with the true crime podcasting is that you have to keep every door open and you have to explore every avenue. And the things that are going to start happening will be we are now dismissing certain theories that have been out there. We have the theories of the struggle at the car. We have the theories of accidental overdose. Um, and we have we have certain accounts that were out there that were one thing and we've come to find out uh, are not accurate or the people who've made the accounts have lied. And now we know what the truth is, which leads us down another avenue. But at least we've dismissed that one original account. So this is, this is a process. This is a process that, like you said... We're not going to we're not going to discount anything. We're not going to focus solely on one thing. You can't. But you can start dismissing them as 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 the talk increases. And a couple of months ago, Chloe and I met with an investigator on the case, a former police chief from a town in Massachusetts. And Chloe and I met him at the Cracker Barrel. Lou is his name. Great guy. Seems to be pretty determined. Is working with something called the Center for the Resolution of Unresolved Crime, which is an organization that is also run by Sarah Stein, who is also working on this case a lot behind the scenes. And so we're we're trying to get Sarah for an interview. Lou told us that he didn't want to do an interview right now, but uh, we will ask him again. But uh, but Sarah did agree to an interview, and so she uh, we're, we're going to try to circle back and get her back for an interview uh, soon. So I think that would be really interesting because she's uh, very professional. She's a doctor. She's uh, worked on a lot of cold cases and uh, is working on the Molly Bish case behind the scenes, not to mention a bunch of other ones. And these are the two people who organized the tip campaign uh, a couple months back in, in March, correct? Yes, so we're not talking about just a couple of amateur sleuths. Not at all. Very professional people. Um, hot on the trail is uh, is one expression I'll use. Um, so it's always interesting talking to them because they know more than we do. And so uh, their information kind of sprink- is sprinkled down to us, if you will. Um, but uh, but it's pretty good. They're working with us, and I think they like what we're doing. So we're going to try to work with them as much as we can. Now, why was it that uh, Lou didn't want to come on the show? Good question, Lance. You should um, you should come to breakfast next time and ask him. Well, who who has who schedules a breakfast at like on a Tuesday at like ten? It was definitely a weekend. We are trying to plan another meeting with uh, with Sarah, and we'll bring uh, we'll bring Lance along uh, this time, so the five of us can uh, get acquainted. Well, I mean, put me in the car seat in the back and bring me along. Some upcoming interviews we are looking forward to. Uh, The aforementioned Sarah Stein, if we can get her, that would be amazing. Hank Alborelli, who wrote some articles on this case early on, we spoke to him maybe a couple months ago, and he's a real interesting guy, and he also agreed to an interview, so... We just haven't been able to lock down a schedule, a time, and a date. So hopefully we can get him on soon because I think he has a voice that you would really love to hear from in this case. It's definitely a lot different than most of the people we've heard from so far. Yes, that that that, that gentleman is a character. He's got a lot of theories about a lot of things. Uh, but what he talks about here with uh, Brianna's case is definitely worth a listen. And Keeley 
is someone that we've been trying to get on. Do you have you made any progress with Keely, Chloe? We are actively in communication, just trying to find a good time. You know, she's she's busy and she's a mom, so we're just working it out. But she is very interested in talking. And to remind uh, the listeners, Keely is the young woman who had punched Brianna at a party and I, that resulted in a concussion. There was a disagreement, an argument, and turned into a fight about um, what we think is jealousy over uh, boyfriends. But this is why we want to have people like Keely on is because there's this perception out there that soon thereafter their fight and you can go online and you can see the pictures of Brianna's face after Keely punched her. There's a perception that Keely might have had something to do with Brianna's disappearance. Right, because this was just a few weeks before Brianna went missing. So naturally, that's where a lot of people start to look, and I'm sure investigators did too. And if they found anything, we wouldn't even have this podcast, right? If they found something about Keely and she was directly involved, if law enforcement... If they're doing their job, then they've arrested the guilty party. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier on, that part of the story is true. And 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 you want to make sure that you have all of these scenarios and you consider all of them, but you need to start stripping away the ones that you prove inaccurate. And the only way we can do that is to have people like Keely on and, and give an account. And then we can then we can make a, a, a much more educated uh, uh, opinion. We can we can form a much more educated theory about their relationship and and her involvement. What do you guys think? Where, where should we go from here? What's next? How are you feeling right now? I think for me moving forward, something that I just want to be mindful of is keeping our minds open. You know, one of the purposes of this episode was kind of clarifying that even though we shared two similar theories in our most recent interviews, that's not what we're zeroing in on. We're keeping an open mind. We're fortunate to have had so much information come at us and we're being mindful to not make a story until we have everything that we need to actually make an informed opinion. And right now we're not there yet, but we won't be comfortable getting there until we have the evidence. I'm feeling like we have to tread carefully not tread lightly but tread carefully and plot our next steps uh as responsibly as possible we were just given a ton of information from greg obviously information that we're not going to reveal on a podcast uh, but it's information that we can consider and and know the direction in which we're going to uh move on this um for anyone who listens obviously if you're listening now crawl space is divided up into a few different cases so you're not going to strictly get brianna you'll get a couple of episodes of of the other cases that we work on which also gives us some time to um produce these brianna shows uh to to research the information that we've we've gotten and, and kind of vet out the things that aren't really uh uh, important, and it's not our determination whether or not they're important. It's whether or not you know the the people that are directly involved in the investigators will tell us, and the family will tell us like that's really not where you should be going. I do know that I would love to talk to uh, the boyfriend at the time or the ex boyfriend at the time, James Robitelli. I think that I think his story is extremely interesting. 
Uh, it's extremely interesting that we found out he touched Brianna's car the night that he saw it. And I'll leave it at that. We didn't know that before. We found out that he touched Brianna's car. So it went from one thing, now it's uh, now it's another thing. person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.